0: Welcome to WeAreTechnology.com's User-Friendly 2.0 with host Bill Sickens, Technology Architect.
1: And this is User-Friendly 2.0. I'm your host, Bill Sickens, Gretchen and Bill are, as they have for many weeks, joining us. Welcome to the show. Hello. Hello. So, I'm hearing a very concerning rumor that our listeners are going to be able to see us pretty soon. Yeah, I love need the moment a of mask. silence. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: I'm going to be pulling out the clone trooper helmets and uh, all kinds of things, but I don't know if Disney will allow that.
1: <laughs> oh, I, I, we we could start competing with Doomcock, but I I think he's kind of got the uh, the front on that. So, uh
0: <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> but I have lots uh, of, of Star Wars based masks
1: and helmets. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, so a future topic, fair use doctrine. Anyway, so, but yeah, no know, what's, what's happening? We're going to talk about this a little bit more after the news. Is, uh, there's some new things coming up for user-friendly that we are in the process of testing out now. And as we alluded to, one of them is going to be video. We're going to have a YouTube channel, among other things. So we'll talk about that in a little bit, but uh, right now we're all still trying to figure out uh, <laughs> how we want to do this, but uh, it'll be a lot of fun. I think it's something that uh, I know you've asked for it for a while and We've thought about doing it, and last year it just kind of didn't come together. But we're in a position now where we can do this and hopefully have it look good. So we'll see what happens. You'll have to give us your honest feedback, as you always do. Later in the show, we're going to be talking Bitcoin. We've got an expert on from Bitcoin University who's going to be giving us some information and just basic background on the cryptocurrency. We've talked about this on the show many times before, but uh, this gives more of a kind of a one-stop to answering your questions. So. We're looking forward to that, and then we're going to be talking, again, from your questions about power failure, generators, technology like that, to be able to get your house back up and running in the event, the very likely event it seems like lately, of a power failure. That's all coming up in the second segment, but for right now, and with no further ado, let's go to the news.
0: Apple issues critical patch for iPhones and Macs
1: we covered this last week i believe it was that there are problems with the web browser and other things it's a zero day that they can bad guys can get in there and execute code in protected or out of bounds memory and by doing that they can get access to maybe passwords you put in and all that type of stuff and one of the questions was well what do we do about that and i said that i would look into it well this is the answer apple ha- on Monday released updates for iOS, iPadOS, macOS, tvOS, and Safari to address this flaw on their platform. So these are out Monday. Very important that if you haven't put this update on, you should because this is something that in a worst case scenario, bad guys can actually get in and execute code on your device without you knowing about it. So they could run your banking app or something like that. So definitely uh, something you want to do, but that is how it is going to be fixed on Apple devices.
2: Apple also has a new iPhone security feature.
1: Yep, and this is something you'll want to turn on and you'll need to turn it on before you need to use it. What this is is something called Stolen Device Protection and it's coming out in update 17.3, which is the latest iOS update. So, what we're talking about here is something that's different from unlocking your screen and those type of things when you use your phone. So, most of, well, pretty much all smartphones, I'm, I'm sure of any that don't. All smartphones at least have the ability to lock the screen and then you use a pen code or a, a, you can draw a little thing on it or you can use facial recognition. You know, there's all kinds of things to unlock the phone. And then to make this a little bit less of a hassle, you can have trusted devices whereby if your phone is in your local network or connected to a, your Bluetooth headset or something or your car or whatever, it will stay unlocked during that time and then it locks itself back up when it's out of those systems. So all of that's fine and well, but if someone steals your phone and they can get around that and hackers do have some ways they can get in, even with these things in place, um, you still have a lot of personal information on your phone, passwords, credit card numbers, sometimes access to various, a lot of people use them for banking. So those, those kind of accounts are on there and a lot of other stuff. And what Apple's doing is kind of taking security a step further here that what this requires is, number one, that if someone gets into the phone and you've turned this on, they can't change your password and it creates delays. So if you want if you want to go in and change your password uh, on your Apple account or apply for an Apple credit card, which you can do through an iPhone, those kind of things, um, you either have to be in one of your trusted networks or it locks it down for biometric or some other kind of protection and then requires you to, uh, in the case of changing your password, as a, for example, you tell it that you want to change your password. It requires biometrics to be able to get into the function to do it. Then it makes you wait an hour and then it requires biometrics again to be able to do it. So what it is, is the idea to make this much, much more difficult. And the one kicker to this is you do have to turn it on. So it doesn't come on automatically and it's settings, privacy and security, location services, system services, significant locations to set up where your trusted locations are and then the app itself to turn it on. So, again, I can see where this is something that's probably a very good idea. I hope we see it on Android. We probably will, being that Android seems to mimic a lot of these features after they come out. But just something to be aware of. And um, the other feature that I really like on this is if your phone's stolen and you can't get it back and it's the end of the day, you can actually, with this, go through your through the website, report the device is permanently lost, and have it erase itself remotely. Oh, that's cool. So. <laughs> <laughs> It's kind of like a self-destruct. Yeah, kind of a self-destruct <laughs> option. But uh yeah, so the they're they're getting more serious about this. The other thing that I think that's good about these kind of things is you kind of do want to have something where your device is worthless if it's stolen. So, you know, if you want to sell your iPhone, then it's worth whatever it's worth. But if it's stolen to make it to a point where it just simply can never be used again, so there's no value behind it would help your theft. Mm-hmm.
0: All right, 2024 Oscar nominations are
1: out. Yes, and the full list can be found online, but um, they've got the last of them out here now. I'm behind on my watching movies, I guess. Um, I'm looking at some of this stuff. Some of them I've heard about, of course, like Barbie, which, okay, whatever. Um, But there's a lot of other ones on here. Uh, American Fiction, Anatomy of a Fall, yes, I can talk. Uh, the holdovers and some that look like actually pretty good films that are worth checking out. Well, so I'm going to Oppenheimer to should be on that list. So Oppenheimer is for best picture. Yeah. Um, I think they got nominated for some other stuff too, but I know they're up for best picture. A uh, best actor I think was one of the other ones supporting actors. So they've got a number of uh, nominations in there. Um, best picture, which is kind of the first one Barbie, which we kind of all figured would be in there. But some of the other ones, Ma- maestro sounds like an interesting movie. Um, you know, so definitely, uh, cool to kind of see this. And I think that the list this year is a little more, there's a little more to it than some of the past Oscar years. So it's going to be kind of fun to see where they end up going with all of this, uh, all this and who actually wins what, but yeah, it's coming up and the full list can be found online. If you want to take a look at it, it is there and, uh, we'll let you know what the results are when we have them.
2: Japan hopes sunlight can save stricken, slim moon lander.
1: Yeah, this is kind of a bummer. (laughs) So Japan landed a lander on Mars. um, I believe it was last week, Saturday. No, the moon. moon, I'm sorry, the moon. My head's on Mars today. On the moon last week, Saturday. (laughs) But it was only on for about three hours. And there was a problem with the way that it landed. Well, these things are tough, you know. Yeah, And um, but it had uh, solar cells were pointing west away from the sun and therefore could not generate electricity. So instead of letting the system completely shut off, they put it into a sleep mode. And what they're waiting for is the sun to change direction to try to get the system back up online. They did get some stuff out of it in the three hours it was running, but obviously are hoping for quite a bit more. And uh, basically, to give you an idea of this, the lunar day is about two Earth weeks. So when the sun comes up, um, it's in the wrong direction. They're, what they're waiting for is something like lunar moon, uh, noon, if you want to compare it that way, so that it'll be in the right angle and hopefully start generating electricity. So, yeah. um, you know, up here in Oregon in, in December around the solstice, it might feel like we have two weeks of darkness, but no, they do, and two weeks of light. And that's what it uh, what it does. I think my days are long enough. I'm glad that it's only 24 hours here.
0: Yeah. Okay. Now I I see the reason why you were thinking Mars. NASA says it's a re-established contact with the Ingenuity Mars Helicopter.
1: Yeah, Ingenuity. So this is a helicopter that's actually on Mars, and it really is on Mars this time. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) And they fly it around, and it um, sends its uh, communication back to the perseverance rover. And then the rover relays the transmissions back to Earth. And it's been having some problems lately. I uh, was reading about this where it's been doing some weird things, but it finally has gone silent. Oh. And the concern was that that might have been the end of it. But they're trying to do a systems check. And, you know, there's some cases where they may be able to transport to it, but transmit to it, but it doesn't transmit back. So I don't know. Perhaps we can have one of our engineers stop by and fix it on their way to the you know, Teruk North Space Station.
0: Yeah. Uh, now, I, okay. <laughs> yeah. This whole brings up the idea of lift and and air, and you know, is air dense or, or is it thin there? And how does a helicopter? How how would they know that a helicopter would actually generate lift on Mars? So maybe we well, need to get a hold of one of these NASA, you know, Mars engineers to answer that. Unless you know.
1: No, I was going to say, I think that's a very good idea. And that's what I was going to suggest because I have not been to Mars. So <laughs> I don't uh, know exactly how this works, but there is a lot of research that's been done on this. And um, at a 10,000 foot view, it is possible to fly air vehicles around the planet. Um, they've been doing that for a while. In fact, I think the mission where this went silent was it's uh, the helicopter's 72nd uh, flight. So oh, wow. It's been, you know, something that's been done for a while. Cool. But the thing of it is, is there's been landers and other stuff in the past. So they've had the ability to do some research on things like air pressure and, you know, some of the different uh, requirements that are necessary in creating lift in that type of an environment and have created a vehicle that's capable of doing it. So, but, you know, it is an interesting question um, as far as being able to dive into that type of a thing and to the details. And I know a lot of our listeners are very much into the specifics of this type of thing. Let me see if I can find someone from NASA. We'll ask. And if anybody's listening that knows about this and would like to come on and talk about it, send us an send us an email at our website at userfriendly.show. We'd love to hear from you.
2: Well, this next one's a mouthful. Malicious NPM packages exfiltrate hundreds of developer SSH keys via GitHub.
1: Oh boy. Okay. So that's that's too bad. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs>
0: okay, well, so first, basically what's an npm and then ssh?
1: <laughs> yeah, so let me let me actually take a step back even from this. Let me let me talk about this. If you're in programming, you probably know what GitHub is. Um yes. if you are not a programmer, then this is something that's going to just sound like uh, you know, techno babble from Star Trek or something with that headline. So basically what happens is is many programmers when they set up source code and stuff needed an online repository to store the source code. I'm being very simplistic on this before anybody yells at me in the comments for what does all these other things. I know, but at a basic level, that's what you're doing. So let's say I'm working on Bill's application and I have a team of three programmers that are working with me on Bill's application. So when I write my code, I need a place that it can be put so that my other programmers can get access to it. Okay, that's one use of GitHub. And then what the GitHub does is, let's say I'm working on one part of the code and the other programmer's working on another, it allows us to not step on each other's toes, so to speak. You check files in and out so that you know that somebody else is working on a given component. Another big use of this is open source applications where I write bills module, which I hope everybody will use and I'm going to provide for free. And I put it out there and have a public way to get to it. And then... um Other people can go and download that source code and use it for whatever they would want to use it for. So, and there are many other uses for GitHub, but this is the basics of it. And what the concern here is, is in order to get into that, because it's an online resource, you don't want the bad guys going in and inserting other applications into your code that you don't know about, which has happened, or stealing code if it's a proprietary thing, that kind of stuff. And on GitHub, on the repository, it stores what's called an SSH key, one of our acronyms. Um, the NPM being a uh you know having to do with JavaScript, which would take too much time to get into. But these key files are what is accessible by these exploits. And they're able to get in there, um, pull from process memory, very similar to the iPhone hack we were talking about earlier, and then get the SSH key, which allows the bad guy to log into your repository and therefore steal or change your code. So The bigger worry, I think, more than stealing code, you don't want that to happen, obviously, but is the idea that you have, let's say I have an application that's open source that uh, is used by 10,000 other app developers for some component of whatever it is they're doing. And it auto-updates. Now, the bad guys can get in and put in malicious code that can steal software, passwords, or something off of the end user's device into my application. I auto-update going out to these other 10,000 developers So now that bad guy has just injected their malware into all of those apps. Those are the kind of things that this is a real concern about and why this is important. So for most end users, the idea of repositories and GitHub, and there's more than just GitHub, that's one of the big ones, um, and other things out there, is something you probably really haven't heard of. And if you have, you probably haven't needed to interact with. But it is definitely a very important part to the software creation and distribution process. So a lot of times the cyber criminals will try to attack in those areas instead of something that's more known because maybe there's a little less you know security in that type of a thing. So this is being addressed. This is nothing that a normal computer user would have to deal with. You don't have to change passwords or anything like that. But those of us that are developers certainly do need to be aware of it and deal with making sure that this type of thing doesn't happen. So um software supply chain firm. Reversing Labs found this. And the exploits are something called Warbeast 2000 and Codec 2K. And they found that there were actually eight different versions of the Warbeast exploit and more than 30 of the Codec 2K. So it's something that is pretty prevalent and something that needs to be dealt with.
0: Oh boy, here's some more stuff. Uh, Warning as 26 billion records leak, and uh, Dropbox, LinkedIn, and Twitter
1: are named. Bill, if this really is 26 billion, would you think that's the largest act to date or number of records? It's
2: one of the higher ones.
1: Yeah, I was trying to look to see. I mean, it seems like a big number, even by today's standards. Yeah. But um, uh, it certainly is one of the biggest, if it's not the biggest. And uh, these are data records. So it isn't like just one thing or another, it's various different things. And. Um, Records of users on platforms and services such as Twitter, Dropbox um, that we've just talked about here, LinkedIn, uh, and others were included in that, Telegram. A lot of the records were from an assortment of U.S. and other government organizations, so that's a big worry about this type of thing. But when personal information gets out, it's always a bad thing. It just seems like these days, so much of this has happened, and this isn't something where you can easily really... Do much about it, that uh, you start looking at this and it's almost like it's just a lot more bad news. Mm -hmm. The thing of it is, as far as this goes and all the other hacks, the best that we can all do is being vigilant. And we're actually going to be putting together a a special podcast on user-friendly and we'll give you the information on how to get to it when it's out in the next couple of weeks on a really kind of a deep dive of what to do for identity protection and Some of these hacks where you can't really change a password to work around it. We're going to be talking a little bit about what the exploits are and what to look for to see if you've been targeted because they're starting to do things now where it isn't. They just go and want to take all the money in your checking account. Now, don't get me wrong, they still want to do that. But there's other things that you may not even realize is going on until on down the road, which can get really scary. Like, I'll just give you one example right now as an individual, we have a lot of Restrictions on where we can export technology. Okay, this is a specific thing with that. And they were trying to export technology illegally to Russia. So Mm -hmm. using identity theft, they stole a person's name, social security number, and other stuff and set him up as the exporter. Of course, he didn't know anything about this until the men in black came knocking on his door, and he sat for almost six months uh in a in lockup before they were able to sort it out and figure out that he was not, you know, a spy sending this stuff to Russia. So it actually can get very dangerous and be a lot more about than just stealing money. So again, we'll let you know about this, the podcast, when it comes out, we're going to do a special edition one for that and talk about this in a lot of detail. But in the meantime, just something else to be aware of. And just the 10,000 foot view, watch your financial accounts, look for anything weird. And if you do see something that isn't right, get a hold of your institution right away, because there are deadlines that you have to abide by to be able to file claims.
2: Bad Batch season three to drop February
1: twenty first. Oh, Gretchen, what do you think about it? You like season two? I think. Yeah, and boy, there was a heck of a cliffhanger. Okay. Now I am I'm sure I'm going to get the tomatoes thrown at me, but I have not seen season two. You're kidding? <laughs> no. What the um, heck is wrong so, with you, buddy? Uh, yeah, well, like I say, I I, I know, and I look. I, everybody, I now go will... ahead and. Sit.
0: I live fairly close to you, and I actually have paid for Disney
1: Plus, so you could come over and watch it. Now, I think we might need to make that happen, and I know I'm going to get a little pushback from another group I'm a member of that's into Star Wars about this, too. I just <laughs> haven't had a chance to do it, but uh, oh, um, I know the general the feedback i is getting. intense. That's what I've heard, and uh, we're not going to do a spoiler right now until, if I, at least I can see it. There you go. It's all about me right now. but <laughs> It's all about you. At the end of the day. <laughs> I probably do need to watch this. I really like season one. I thought it was well done. So I'm assuming season two is is just as good. And like I say, from you and from everybody else that's talked about this, Bill, have you seen Bad Batch? No, I haven't. Okay. I don't feel as alone, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so uh, February 21st is the uh, day that season three starts. So we'll be looking at that and I will do my best to have watched season two prior to that so that we can talk about it a little bit more here. I see a couple of stormtroopers at my door as soon as this airs, uh kidnapping <laughs> me and taking me somewhere to, to do this. So... uh <laughs> hey,
0: As long as they, they they come by and pick me up too, because I wouldn't oh, mind watching it again. That works.
1: Yeah, <laughs> in that context, I'm in charge of the stormtroopers. So, you know, but still, uh, I wouldn't I show have to up argue I, Yeah, there you go. Ugh. If Nihilus shows up, well, we're all in for it. All right, what else do we have in the news?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Netflix to
1: remove its cheapest ad-free subscription. Yes. So their password crackdown has worked better than they expected. And as that is being the case, they no longer need to do stuff to get us lemmings to watch. So the basic ad-free subscription, which was $11.99 a month, is going away. They actually stopped people from being able to sign up for it last year, but if you have it, you've been allowed to stay on it. However, that is going to change. You're going to be forced to either go to the 699 tier, which comes with ads, or if you want the cheapest plan without ads, it's going to be $15.49 a month. Um they're going to start with this in the UK and Canada, so equivalent currencies there, those are US dollars. And then we will see that in the United States after that. So uh, basically the crackdown on passwords has proven to be so successful that their stock is going up. They've added, see, I think it was more than 8.8 million subscribers in the fourth quarter or some crazy number like that. And I am not one of them. I just haven't seen a value in Netflix. Just isn't anything that, that I needed on that, but a lot of people like it, which is fine, but it looks like you're going to either have to pay more for it or watch some commercials. All right, speaking of commercials, we're about to take a break. And in our next segment, we're going to be talking cryptocurrency and backup power. This is user friendly 2.0. We'll be back up Have you seen him? He's from the future. He's
0: got a real-
1: Welcome back. This is User Friendly 2.0. Check out our website, userfriendly.show. This is your one stop for past episodes, articles, Tech Wednesday, previous seasons, sending your questions, sending your comments, everything that we do. We love to see you out there. And just a real quick synopsis on our broadcast schedule. It's uh, Saturdays at 2 o'clock in Seattle on KKOL, 5 o'clock in Portland on P.P.A.M., The Answer Seattle, The Answer Portland, respectively. And then after that, the podcast drops. So it's up to you where you want to listen. Just tune in and let us know what you think and give us your feedback. All right, we're going to have a guest coming up here in a few minutes from Bitcoin University, who is going to be talking some details on Bitcoin. But before we get into that, we've talked about it here on the show before. And uh, I know I don't think any of us, Bill, Gretchen, do you guys own cryptocurrency out of any kind? No, no. Yeah, I I haven't either. No. I know Chaz got into it. Um, I have to ask him how he's doing with it. Jeremy and um, I you... thought
0: it was stupid. Yeah, <laughs> and we still do,
1: or I still do.
0: <laughs> I don't know
1: if I would use the go that far to use the word stupid. I, I, you know, we've talked about that before, and I do think there's a place for it. And Bill, you like. know, you've talked about this too, but yeah, yeah. But do you
0: see the thing is, is if you can't get the actual real money out and get something real
1: that you need with it. Then to me, it's not real money. Actually, actually, those things have become a lot easier. You can convert okay. crypto to actual currency. Uh, you always could. It was just extremely difficult to do. But now, well,
0: I, we had a friend who gave us one as a gift, and we could never get it out.
1: Yeah, I know. I remember. I remember that. But it's uh, it's changed a little bit now. Some of the bigger sites like PayPal and stuff support it. So you're able to, you know, deal with it and actually convert it back and forth and that kind of thing. And there's, you know, I think it's ETF or something that is the acronym that you can actually start having this as part of your investment portfolio. Our guest will be talking about the differences on that here in a little bit as well. But the thing of it is, is, you know, again, for anybody that doesn't know, I don't know who that would be, but for anybody that doesn't know, cryptocurrency is an electronic form of money. It doesn't have usually a physical representation. So if you see a, a picture talking about crypto and there's a picture of Bitcoin and a picture of whatever, those don't actually exist. Old electronic and digital. It's transferred using a wallet, a digital wallet. There's codes. Again, there are guests to be talking about that a little bit too coming up. And what Gretchen was just speaking to was it sometimes can be a little bit sketchy. Convert funds into and out of. At least we've had problems with that in the past. Now, my understanding for most people that I've talked to on this is that has become a lot less of an issue in recent years. What I've noticed is a big issue in recent years, however, is still the fluctuation of value of this stuff.
0: Mm -hmm. And it's
1: been coming back up lately. I looked it up before we started recording today. We record on Wednesday. It was somewhere around 40,000, was going up at that point. But you can have these huge rises and drops to the extent that there's been media commercials where you have the guy standing there with his phone. I'm a millionaire. No, I'm not. Yes, I am not, you know, and it's where these things bounce around. So there's a lot of where they've been trying to do legislation decide if this stuff is legal. Some countries have outlawed it all together. Some have gone the other way and focus on doing crypto. And then there's different kinds, Bitcoin being one of the better known ones, but there's a lot of different Bitcoins out there. So you have different, not only electronic currency, but different versions of it that all have their own value system. Um then you have things like NFTs, non fungible tokens, I think I'm saying that right, fungible tokens, um, which are electronic versions of maybe a piece of art or something. you can buy this piece of art and you own it because you own the NFT for it. Now that's something that I do think is stupid. <laughs> but um yeah. Yeah. I, I really don't understand how that is Something that I would ever want to do because where these things come out, the artwork or whatever that's attached to them and the article that talks about it, there's a picture of the artwork. So it's not like it's unique in that sense. I guess maybe you own the rights to it. But in any event, I'm sure we'll get some feedback on my comment there. But again, Bitcoin is something that's here. It's here to stay. And it's a situation where a lot of people are curious about it. A lot of people have invested in and lost or made money, depending on when what you did. So to that extent, let's talk about this a little bit more with our expert. Let's go to our interview with Bitcoin University. Joining me now is Evander Smart with Bitcoin University. Welcome to the show.
3: Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: So our listeners ask a lot about Bitcoin, and so do I. And we've talked about this off and on over the years, but this is the first time we've had the opportunity to talk to an expert yourself. So why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about Bitcoin kind of in general, and then what Bitcoin University is.
3: Well, Bitcoin is a decentralized global economic protocol and system. And there's actually technically two Bitcoins. The token itself would be the lowercase b if you ever see Bitcoin spelled with a lowercase b that is referring to the token. And the protocol itself would be the uppercase uh, large b. And it represents basically a new form of money and a new asset class, which we are starting to see here in 2024 with the Bitcoin Spot ETF, which is hitting Wall Street as we speak. And in my opinion, uh, this is the greatest invention and the greatest investment of the 21st century. And here in its 15th year, it's getting ready to have its biggest year ever. So you're going to hear it a lot as far as. BlackRock and uh, Fidelity, they're going to be advertising uh, because now they have their money invested. And you're going to hear it on the campaign trail as far as the presidential election because people are investing in it. They want to know how uh, government's going to interact with it. And we're going to hear about CBDCs and all sorts of things. And uh, this all started with Bitcoin. you are going to hear about blockchains. All of that started with the greatest invention of the 21st century, Bitcoin.
1: So I'm going to circle back to one set of letters you just used a minute ago, and that's ETF. And that's been a big deal this year because now my understanding, which is not as an expert or anything like that, is that it means that you can now invest in Bitcoin through a standard portfolio. Am I right on that? And can you tell us a little bit more about what's happening?
3: Well, yes and no. Um, The Bitcoin spot ETF is an important part of Bitcoin history. The problem is it's not going to make any new Bitcoiners at least directly. If you are investing in a Bitcoin spot ETF, you will be able to cull some uh, funds and uh, return on investment through what BlackRock and Fidelity and ARK are doing. But the holders of these funds, these fund managers, they don't be the ones who actually own the Bitcoin. So there is an old saying inside of the uh, Bitcoin community, not your keys, not your Bitcoin. Uh, If you are investing in an ETF, you are investing in a Wall Street investment scheme, you are not investing in Bitcoin directly. So BlackRock, Fidelity, they already own over a billion dollars worth of Bitcoin. They are building their stack, Uh, but the investors in particular are not Bitcoin holders. So what we do here at Bitcoin University is we teach you how to hold uh, this digital asset. Uh, So if you do not have the digital keys. You don't have the private keys. You are not a Bitcoin investor, at least not uh, directly. So it's a very backdoor, very indirect way of investing in Bitcoin or just at least taking advantage of the uh, market. But uh, you are not a Bitcoin investor if you are using a ETF.
1: Okay, now that's good information to know. So if you actually want to own Bitcoin, you would still have to do it through a, a wallet or something like that and where you have, as you say, the keys and that kind of thing. And this is where we're getting into the details. I think something like what you're doing is so important with Bitcoin University, because there's a lot of people that ask a lot of questions about these things, but don't really have you know, that one spot to go to to get all of the answers. So somebody that's looking for more information on it, I know you kind of gave us a, a real brief synopsis earlier, but tell us a, a more about Bitcoin University, what you're doing with that and how somebody would go to your website or you know in, interact with you and really learn how to deal with these kind of assets.
3: Sure, absolutely. Um, What I would recommend to anyone before they even think about investing in Bitcoin is get educated about it. Uh, Learn what you can from someone who's been in the space. I've been in the space for going on 11 years now. I was a Wall Street banker from 2008 to 2011. So I've been on both sides of the street. I know how the economic system works on both sides. And what I discovered in my time at Wall Street is it's not for me. Uh, Wall Street's not for me. I'm uh, not interested in being a money changer. I knew there wasn't a better economic system out there, and I literally just left Wall Street with not a here in the world for some reason i didn't I just knew I was in the wrong position, I was in the wrong place. So I have to find uh, where I belong, and I knew there was something out there for me and I discovered Bitcoin about two years later during what is known as the fall of Cyprus. Cyprus is an island nation in the EU in the middle of the Mediterranean uh, sea next to Greece and uh, and uh, they had a economic kind of collapse. So I was watching an investment news show on the cable news, and they said uh, economic collapse in Cyprus. So I didn't even know what a Cyprus was. But what happened in Cyprus is anyone who had over hundred thousand dollars kept in their banks, they were subject to a haircut. So they lost anything over hundred thousand dollars, so they could recapitalize the bank. There was a banking collapse. And what the people were doing to counter that is they started investing in Bitcoin. So this was February through early April of 2013, when I first heard about Bitcoin. And Bitcoin went from 20 US dollars in value to over $200, so it had 10x growth in a matter of a few weeks. So this made international news, and I was like, hey, this is what I've been looking for. I need to learn more about this technology, and I spent the rest of 2013 learning what Bitcoin was. And that was literally one of the top Google searches, what is a Bitcoin? And I started writing for uh, CryptoCoins News, which was the first uh, company I wrote for. Uh, I spent the next four years as a journalist. So I used my Wall Street experience to kind of compare it to Bitcoin. And uh, to learn more about this new technology, the best way to do it was immerse myself in the community and uh, share what I know and uh, compare it to the uh, legacy economic system. And I started writing for Bitcoin.com, uh, Bitcoinist. Uh, Cointelegraphs and many others and I'll get paid $20 an article here in Bitcoin. I'll get paid in Bitcoin for all my work uh, Number of shares and reviews and I would write basically every day for all of these different Outlets and uh, this is how I made money. This is how I made a living. I wasn't doing this on the side This was my income. I was making maybe a thousand dollars a month in uh, Bitcoin but uh, this was my life for four years and uh, During that time, 2015, I decided to take all this newfound education and knowledge and build an education site. So BitcoinUniversity.org is what I built. And basically it's a place where you can get books and downloads and videos and learn more about, again, the greatest invention of the 21st century. And uh, what I would recommend to anyone who's interested in learning more is stop by the site. Stop by BitcoinUniversity.org and download the book of Bitcoin. I've written a book. That basically will answer all of your questions. Uh, a lot of people just give me questions about Bitcoin. And a lot of people are, don't, not, don't ask the right questions. So there are a lot of questions I wish people would ask. So I put that all into one book. There's about 60 uh, different chapters within it. And read through the book and go through it and see if this is right for you. See if this is answering the questions the way you want them answered. And uh, if this is leading you down a path that you think is going to help you in the future. And the more you learn about this new technology, I think the more you're going to benefit from it. So I will compare it a lot to the Internet uh, from a generation. Ago. Basically, what Bitcoin is, an Internet of Money, what uh, it's doing for economics and finance, what the Internet did for media and videos and information a uh, generation ago. So please stop by the site, get a free book and uh, see if Bitcoin is right for you.
1: Sounds great. And we'll be putting your website out in our social media. So if you didn't have a chance to write that down, you'll be able to get it off of userfriendly.show. Well, listen, thank you so much for joining us today. And, um, you know, I'm sure we're going to get a lot more questions coming in. Hopefully I can send some of them to you and maybe we can have you back later to answer some of the listener questions.
3: Absolutely. So I'd love to be back and uh, love to help you with any information I can provide. So uh, thank you
1: for having me. VendorSmart, Bitcoin University, bitcoinuniversity.org. A lot of good information there. Check it out, bitcoinuniversity.org, as we mentioned previously. Download the book. It is free, but it is a good place to get some information on cryptocurrency and do some research that has at least been a little bit vetted. So another listener question that has come in a lot, and being that we just came out of an ice storm ourselves up here in the Portland area, I can kind of understand this is backup power because the power goes out. And Rich and I know your house in Reno blacked out for two days or something. Yeah. And last year when you were still living there, you had a massive blackout. Yeah, it was, it was
0: three and a half days. And when you have um, a senior that's handicapped and you have a dog and a cat, there aren't like places going, hey, come here with your handicapped senior and your cat and your dog. You know, so we kind of had to rough it out, and it was a really
1: unpleasant experience.
0: Yeah, and
1: I know. I don't. Bill, have you had a lot of trouble with electric electrical blackouts?
2: I used to when I was uh, back where I used to live, but that was uh, pretty much any time it would rain, the mud inside <laughs> the transformers would uh, short out.
1: The mud inside the transformers. That's good. Wow. <laughs> it's Just that but much I, dust I, out I there.
0: You know, and yeah. it's actually a
1: good example because where you lived was rural. And so you I know your internet out there was interesting sometimes too. Yeah. yeah. And that does go to kind of speak that some areas are more prone to blackout than others. Now, I don't know if rural really is the deciding factor because I would consider where I live up here in Oregon. I mean, it's not rural, rural, but it is definitely out of any kind of a big city area. And it was Portland that had all the problems with the blackouts this time.
0: Oh. Uh, yeah. there was,
1: Certainly other areas that went down, we lost power for a little while, but uh, it was just like looking at the outage map, looked like Portland had a case of the measles. They use red dots for the outages and they're bigger where there's more outages. It made me think of that, but, and it was like they would fix it and then the next part of the ice storm would come in and knock it down again. And you know, all that kind of thing. And like you say, this can be very problematic. I mean, it's inconvenient just anyway, but yeah, if you have, Seniors, or somebody that uses electric machinery for health sustaining devices, uh, you, and that would include most of us that uh, you know use things like a CPAP machine. Even I didn't realize how much I needed that until I didn't have it one night. Oh boy! Oh, boy. And, You know, it was it, it was very eye opening. So I actually bought a backup battery for it after that. But the uh, the thing of it is, is on the flip side, during the ice storm it's inconvenient. You don't have internet access, can't cook, that kind of thing. But if it's prolonged, you don't have heat, which that's unpleasant, you know, and these things can become extremely, I I mean, this last ice storm here was definitely deadly. We had a number of people die, hyperthermia and other things. Um, Some of the stuff like the trees falling on your house that can be avoided through other means, but dealing with electrical problems, is something that is addressable. The biggest problem to kind of just start to dive into this is that it costs money. Backup power is not cheap. And it's something that if you are renting becomes even more difficult because you're not going to want to make, or you might not even be allowed to make permanent modifications to the electrical system in your house or apartment to be able to have this. There are some things you can do, which will make it a little bit better. And then there's a second part of it that when the power is restored or when you're having problems, it can create power surges and brownouts and stuff like that, which can really damage the electronics in your house. So 20 years ago, we didn't have as much. 10 years ago, we didn't have as much. But today, your appliances probably have computers in them. Your certainly things like televisions and whatnot. But anything that plugs into the wall is very susceptible to these type of things. So the question then becomes what can you do? Well, part of it like I say is feasibility and another part of it is figuring out what is and isn't important. And usually when you talk about these things the first part is safeguarding your electronics. So the power goes out, what can you do to try to minimize the surge when it comes back on if it's going to happen? And there are surge suppressors and different things like that. You can buy these are relatively inexpensive, but one concern that I've run into on this is uh, the surge suppressors in the outlet strips. I bought a few of these. And when we started having more of the blackouts in recent years, I wanted to set that up on some of my things. And I ordered a couple online from Amazon and turned it on and the surge light came on and I'm like, this thing's awfully light. So I took one apart last fall and found out there was no surge suppressor in it. Oh, it was just kidding. the power came in from the mains. Oh, a wire went off to the indicator light. It was just permanently on. And then another one for the switch and then just wired up the outlets, which on top of that, The way that the molding was made, the plugs, I think after six months of use, would have worn out and could have started heating up because there would have been resistance and other things like that. So the quality of the device is important. You want to buy from a company that is reputable. Look at the reviews. I've kind of stuck to APC since then just to know that what I get is good.
0: Oh, Okay, now I'm going to have to bug you at some point. How do I open up these things and look for what you just described?
1: So, okay, well, well, will we actually, we can talk about that on air later. We don't have time today, but it's, there, there's ways to test it. Yeah. And uh, it, you actually don't have to physically take it apart. But what I recommend if you can do it, and this again is more likely if you own as opposed to rent, but is get a whole house surge suppressor installed on your circuit breaker panel. And this is something that's recommended. It cost me, I think, $400 included the electrician to do it. So in the grand scheme of things, that wasn't that terribly expensive. And what it does is it protects the whole house. Because even if you get power bars and stuff that really do have surge suppressors, you can't put a power bar on your range, you know, yeah. Yeah. or on your furnace, which has electronics in it. These are type of things that uh, run off of the mains. They're hardwired usually. And even if they're not, I still, I've never seen a 220 range outlet bar. I mean, they just don't make stuff like that. So the whole house surge suppressor is a starting point. But then the next step after that is getting into backup power. Now, Bill, I know you and I have talked about this in the past with UPSs and those type of things. And um I don't do you use a UPS?
2: I do. Um I need to get another one because uh the higher the wattage that you need is makes it a lot more expensive. But uh yeah I've been using one for a while now for my TV and my PS5 and things like that, that uh, can run off of those things.
1: UPS stands for an Inter- interruptible power supply and basically a giant battery. The battery charges from the mains when the lights are on. And when they go off, it continues to power whatever's plugged into it. And as Bill just said, there's different ratings on these things. So the higher the wattage, the longer they'll last or the more they'll be able to do. And you plug these into uh, stuff. They also generally do have surge suppressors built in and things like that as well. So you can use it for both things. And on a lot of UPSs, you'll have one part that's the battery backup. You'll have additional plugs that are just surge suppressors. So you can split things out that way. One thing about UPSs, and this question comes up a lot of time is well, my UPS only lasted 20 minutes. Well, first of all, like we were just saying, the size, the rating, and what you're actually drawing off of it are a big part of it. But the second part of it is the internal battery I find is good for about 18 months, and then they have to be replaced. And there's two primary type of batteries that these use, a lead acid battery, which is most of them. We're now starting to see lithium batteries in them, which makes sense being that there's faster to charge and generally do have more capacity. But at the end of the day, you do want to check that. Now, a lot of UPSs will start uh, sounding an alarm are giving you some indication when the battery goes bad but i've got two that were used in when i had physical servers and i now use one for my television one for my computer that are uh i think 1500s they have four batteries in them and they do a pretty good job but i do have to be a little bit careful because i found that i didn't know the batteries in them were bad until the power went out and they just shut off oh. you do want to kind of keep an eye on that so that's a step you can go a uh, ups cost of those range Oh, fifty to five six hundred dollars, depending on what you're buying and what the level is. I can offer
0: so, an idea on uh, a smaller way to deal with things when um, when the power goes out. Um, I have a Ryobi, a whole bunch of Ryobi um, power tools, and they come with batteries. And you can buy um, for the batteries a special device that you plug the battery in, the Ryobi battery in, and it'll have like an outlet or a USB port, or sometimes it has a a flashlight on it. So if you keep your Ryobi batteries all charged, especially during, you know, when you think the power is going to go out, you could use these to power small devices, like recharge your phone or run some lights, you know? I also have like a little um, solar uh, panel that will recharge small light devices. So th- that's an option for um, something that's not as big as a big generator.
1: Well, yeah. And again, like UPSs and things, it's also an option that if you're running your house, you can use these things without having to modify the actual electrical. Mm-hmm. So I think that kind of a thing does make a lot of sense of what you're describing almost sounds like it is a form of a ups in a way yeah you know a battery battery brick or whatever the case may be and you know and you mentioned generators too this is the next kind of piece of this if you do have the ability to have this type of equipment you can buy a generator and these started about a thousand dollars for portable go on up from there and again it's the same idea of you have to get a rating to power whatever you want to power but Generators are something that I highly recommend you have an electrician installed, because if you don't, it can cause very dangerous situations. Uh, one of them is the suicide plug, where you have a, a mail plug on both ends of the cord and try to back charge your house. I've seen people do this from the generator. And if you touch either one of those sides, you're going to get killed. Um, the other thing of it is, is if it's not installed properly and you run the generator, it can actually back charge into the grid. So when you have the linemen out trying to fix it, they can get electrocuted because there's power in a place that there isn't supposed to be. So if you do it you know, that way, don't do it. But if you do, at least turn off your main breaker so that you don't have that happen. But a generator is a good idea. But again, these can cost a lot of money. The other big thing is, is do not run a portable generator inside of your house. It will kill you. The carbon monoxide, we had one death from that in this last ice storm. It's something that does happen. So you have to be careful with it. So just some ideas there. And uh, we'll keep looking at this stuff and talk about some other things as they come up. And until next week, this is User Friendly 2.0. Keep you safe on the cutting edge.
0: User-Friendly 2.0 is copyright 2013-2024 by User-Friendly Media Group, Incorporated. All rights reserved. Opinions expressed on the show are those of the hosts and guests, and not this radio station. Please check out userfriendly.show for airtimes and podcasts.